Good to see everyone this morning, and we're going to begin our time here on this last, is this the last Lord's Day of April, or do we have one more? This is the last one, isn't it? Last one, okay. Amazing that we're already uh, at the end of April as we, as we move into things. If you haven't already uh, picked up one of the handouts in back, they're back uh, by the sound booth on the side of the sound booth, so I encourage you to grab one of those. Um, as you'll notice, there are fairly detailed notes this morning, and there's a few blanks that we'll fill in as we move along the way, as we continue on with the series that Tim began a number of weeks ago, and he and his family are on vacation, and so I'm going to be uh, teaching this morning, and we'll be doing the same thing again in a few weeks. Um, Tim's covering the majority of things, and I just get to come in and, and sort of supplement and, and help and encourage a little bit. So uh, I want to go ahead and lead us in prayer, and then we're just going to dive right into things as we get started this morning. So let me pray. Our Father, uh, we are so thankful for you and for all that you have revealed of yourself, uh, not only in broad ways within all that you have created, uh, but even more specifically, all that you've revealed in your word. And we know it all uh, revolves around and points to, centers upon uh, your purposes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption that you have designed and accomplished in him and that you are now bringing to bear in the lives of so many people uh, through your Holy Spirit and as your word uh, goes forth through the power of your Holy Spirit. And as all of these matters uh, uh, have such great bearing, not only on our lives individually, but also uh, collectively for those who belong to you as, as your people, as the people of God, as we think about these things in the world that we live in, with all of the different challenges and uh, issues, and particularly as we think about issues of ethnicity and race, and uh, Lord, we need your wisdom and we need your guidance, and we're thankful that you have given your word to that end, that you might equip us and counsel us and direct us so that we could be faithful uh, to live in this world bearing witness to you in the ways that you've designed and intended. So please use our time together now. Uh, give grace and wisdom to me in teaching. Uh, I might be faithful to your word, to all of us in the hearing of your word. Uh, Lord, to both understand and embrace and respond to uh, the things that you desire. And we pray for this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, uh, again, very good to see everybody, and today is the fifth installment in this series that we're going through on ethnic justice and kingdom and the kingdom of God. I just need to get my notes uh, situated here a little bit. Ethnic, ethnic justice and the kingdom of God. And as Tim explained uh, at the outset four weeks ago, the focus on ethnic has to do with different genetic, familial, uh, cultural, and linguistic groups of human beings that are all made in God's image. And justice refers to how things ought to be in God's design and what's the right biblical way for us to think and act regarding ethnicity. And of course, the kingdom of God concerns God's redemptive reign in Jesus Christ, and which has now begun in the church and, of course, awaits fulfillment when Jesus comes again. And so the course is addressing uh, what is the biblical, right, God-glorifying way for God's people, for the church, to think and act about ethnicity. 
ethnic justice, and the kingdom of God. Now, rather than giving a detailed review of everything that Tim's covered over the last few weeks, I would encourage you to just watch those lessons. They're available at the RCG YouTube page. Uh, many of you have probably been a part of all of those. Maybe you haven't, or maybe you just want to uh, be refreshed. I'd encourage you to make use of those. But as you can see in the course outline at the back of the handout, on the last page of the, of the handout, uh, everything that Tim has covered, and I think has very helpfully covered, has sought to identify and evaluate biblically what we observe uh, regarding the often painful and confusing problems of racism and ethnicity. And as Tim has noted repeatedly, we see these problems both in the world and in the church. Now, one thing that Tim has rightly stressed over these previous weeks is that the way of God's wisdom uh, requires careful biblical discernment to understand and to respond to the problems of racism and ethnic division. And he's highlighted the fact that these issues are complex and they require more than quick, simplistic analyses and solutions. And so the first two lessons that Tim covered were an attempt to identify the problems along with uh, some of the deficient diagnoses that have been given for why these problems exist. And then the third lesson presented a fuller biblical analysis identifying specific and clear biblical categories for thinking about ethnic sin and division. And then the fourth lesson that Tim covered two weeks ago turned the corner from problems to solutions, and Tim discussed some, some of the deficient solutions that have been put forth. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue looking at solutions, and really from today to the end of the course, we're going to focus on some of the positive, proactive ways that we should be thinking and acting as God's people regarding ethnic justice and the kingdom of God. And so by design, um, this what to do about it segment of the course, and again, you can see the topics that we're addressing both this morning and in upcoming weeks, uh, but this what to do about it segment of the course focuses more narrowly as our, on our calling as the church. And this is so because the church has the God-given task of representing him in the world. You probably remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, that the church is salt and light in the world. And the church is also the pillar and the buttress of truth in the world, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Now, to focus on the church doesn't mean that we shouldn't be actively concerned about ethnic justice in our whole society, because we should in numerous ways. But it does mean that we actively embrace, for those who are believers, that we actively embrace our God-given responsibility and priority as his people in the church to show how the gospel of Jesus transforms the lives and the relationships of sinners in true righteousness and holiness. And as Tim said two weeks ago when he was talking about this, our conduct should complement our confession. And so that's why we're focusing now on the things that we are, especially within the context of those who are believers in the context of the church. 
So just a few quick notes as we gear up to dive into these things. Uh, first of all, as you can see by the handout, I'm going to cover a lot of ground this morning. And for the sake of time, um, I was going to be reading a number of the scripture references. I've actually delegated that to Joshua DeYoung. Uh, did I say that right, Joshua? As we move through these things, he's mic'd up. He has a microphone. So as we go through a lot of these scripture passages, I've just asked him to read them just for simplicity, continuity, and so we don't get too bogged down uh, in, in trying to move through all of these. Uh, the second thing I want to mention is that some of the things that I'm going to share this morning anticipates and touches on topics that are going to be addressed more fully in future classes. And then the last thing to mention is that much of what I'm uh, presenting this morning is drawn from uh, a recent book by Dr. Jarvis J. Williams. It's referenced there near the end of your handout uh, called Redemptive Kingdom Diversity of Biblical Theology of the People of God. Uh, this isn't exclusively drawn from that, but in, in large part echoes the things that he has shared in that book. And so with all of that said, and let me say the other thing, as, as always, as we go through this, if you have questions, comments, observations, um, don't hesitate to interrupt by raising your hand and, and asking, and I'll try to provide some opportunities as we move through things as well. So uh, the intent is that this be somewhat discussion-oriented as we move along. So what I want to do is begin with a thesis, which I'm then going to spend the rest of our time unpacking. And it's there on the front page, some fill in the blanks with this, but here's the thesis that's going to guide and frame all that we're talking about this morning. God's sovereign design for for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his redemptive kingdom diversity and to the praise of his glorious grace. So that's a mouthful, but that's why I also included it in your notes there. Let me say it again so you can get those uh, fill in the blanks. God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his redemptive kingdom diversity. And all of this is to the praise of God's glorious grace. And I accent that last part of the statement to the praise of his glorious grace. That's because this is why God is doing all that he is doing in redemptive history. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in verse 6, 12, and 14, uh, in that section of Ephesians chapter 1, God is, or I'm sorry, the apostle, well, God through the apostle Paul is unpacking the rich spiritual blessings that believers have in Christ. And in verse 6, he says, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. And then that's echoed again in verse 12 when he says it's to the praise of his glory. And again in verse 14, it's to the praise of his glory. So everything that we're talking about ultimately is in that context. What God is doing in his redemptive work in his kingdom and through his people and with all of the diversity that's bound up in that, all to the praise of his glorious grace. 
And so again, uh, that's the thesis that we're going to focus on and just unpack as we move through things this morning, that God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his redemptive kingdom diversity to the praise of his glorious grace. So let's look at part one of that statement, God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity. What we're going to see here is that from before the foundation of the world, God's sovereign, loving, and wise design has been to redeem and gather his people in a kingdom of unified diversity. This is his design from before the foundation of the world. And this is what Williams in his book calls redemptive kingdom diversity. So what I want to do is briefly walk through a number of passages that trace the unfolding of this redemptive kingdom diversity, really beginning in Genesis, moving all the way through the book of Revelation. And and these are just a small, small, small portion of, of, of almost countless passages that we could look at. Uh, but again, Joshua is going to help me by reading these as I, as I note them as we move along. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. So Joshua, take it away. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay. Thank you. Now, what we see here is at creation... Uh, I want to highlight the diversity that God um, wove into the very fabric of creation, the diversity of male and female, diversity of maleness, if you will, and femaleness, uh, both made man and woman in God's image. And to note that God's design was to see this man and woman as the parents of one single yet diverse human race. One single yet diverse human race. All of the offspring then that would multiply from Adam and Eve would thereby multiply this God-given diversity. Now this original diversity of male and female distinct from but corresponding to one another, think about it, it's the only part of God's creation that is identified as being made in His image, made to share a likeness of God with God in knowing Him and in exercising dominion with Him and like Him over all of creation. 
Now, William says of this, uh, this one human race, and I'm going to quote here from his book on page 11, human race is connected to God's very own image, not to the many images of criteria established by humans who create their own boundaries and fictions for the purpose of distinguishing themselves from the so-called other. The point I'm highlighting here is that just in creation with man and woman, God designed diversity unified diversity. And remember, as Tim has talked about in previous weeks, modern concepts of race are social constructs that have been made up uh, by white European colonizers to justify the oppression and the enslavement of black people of African descent. These are false fictional constructs that grew out of sinful ideas of superior and inferior races based on skin color. Now, the multiplication, obviously, of these false constructs encompasses not just whites and blacks, um, but myriads of groups of people. And so, as Williams noted, Tim has mentioned this in previous weeks, race is a biological fiction, even though it is a social reality. And obviously, aspects of these things were already at play well before uh, these constructs were more focused by um, European colonizers. But from the beginning, what we see is that God created one single yet diverse human race with each human being having equal dignity as bearers of God's image. And the key point here is that this God-designed distinction and differences within the one human race existed before, not after, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Well, now, uh, Joshua, if you'd read chapter 3, verse 15, and this now takes place after the fall in this statement of judgment as God is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. Now, the fall of Adam and Eve uh, through rebellion to God, we know, brought about both corruption to to human nature, and it also brought God's curse to all of creation. And of course, this radically impacted the whole human race. Now, in this statement in chapter 3, verse 15, God's promise that offspring from the woman would bruise or would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent, serpent, It's spoken in the context of the enmity that is now present within the human race. And evidence of this enmity begins to occur in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain sinfully dominates another image bearer by killing his brother Abel. So we begin to see the evidence of this enmity. But nevertheless, God's promise in chapter 3, verse 15, to crush the offspring of the serpent through the offspring of the woman is a promise to to regain or to restore what was lost in the garden. Now, uh, with the rest of the passages that we're going to move through, I'm going to make some brief comments as they relate to God's unfolding promise plan to bring the blessing of salvation to diverse sinners from all nations. In other words, his promise plan uh, for the redeeming and the gathering of his people in his kingdom of unified diversities or diversity. 
the, pro, the uh, beginnings of this promise plan are spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and this follows God's acts of judgment with the flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, as well as his judgment with confusing mankind's language and dispersing them throughout the earth in Genesis 11 uh, verses 1 to 9. And both of those acts of judgment were God's responses to man's growing wickedness. Uh, But he didn't destroy the human race completely. He was setting the stage for what promises he makes to Abraham beginning in Genesis 12. So let's hear that, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so uh, God's sovereign choosing of this one man who was originally named Abram, and then God eventually changed his name to Abraham, Uh, His sovereign choosing of him and his offspring through whom he would bless all the nations with the blessing of salvation. And this is through whom he would be working to fulfill uh, the promise he originally gave back in chapter 3, verse 15. And what God is uh, developing here, and it's going to take fuller form as things move on, is a covenant relationship with Abraham. Covenant being a binding agreement between the two covenant partners, a covenant which God would develop and expand. And there's a lot of dimensions to this as it moves along. We're going to fast forward to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, where God's people have been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. They have grown, they have multiplied, and now God has led them out of Egypt under Moses. He's brought them to Mount Sinai, and he's preparing to more fully formalize and codify his will and his purposes for them as a nation, as his people. And so here's what we read in chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, as this begins to take greater form. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, the key here to see, and and, and we're just touching on these things, obviously, in 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 a quick survey fashion. But God identifies his people now as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. And his intent, flowing from the promises he originally gave to Abram back in chapter 12, is for his people, his chosen people, uh, to represent him to the world, uh, to represent and to proclaim him to the world as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. And so all of his purposes for his unique design for his people are bound up within what he's intending to do in in displaying and proclaiming himself to the nations, to the world. Now, we're going to look at a couple of other passages here in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 1 
The reason I highlight this is because this is happening and this is being spoken of at the very beginning of the book of Psalms within uh, the covenant framework of all that God has done in, in establishing and identifying his people and who they are and how they're to function. Uh, but Joshua, go ahead and read all of Psalm 1 and then I'll make just a couple of quick observations and we'll see how these things tie together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the, ske- in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the, Lord, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Okay. The point I want to emphasize here, and again, this is at the very um, beginning of the entire book of Psalms, is that the framework and the distinctions that are noted among image-bearing human beings are according to God's evaluation of being righteous or being wicked. This is the framework and the distinctions in which God sees those whom he's made in his image as righteous or wicked. And all of this then is within the framework of one single diverse human race. Uh, There's no regard for distinctions here or elsewhere according to false man-made constructs of race with all the resulting hierarchies of superior or inferior uh, frameworks that we know all too commonly in our world. This is how God sees people. Uh, There's another way that distinctions uh, in God's eyes are spoken of, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. If you want to read that verse, Joshua. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, you're probably familiar with that statement. And again, this is at the outset of the entire book of Proverbs. And here, mankind, image bearers of God, are distinguished um, by ter- in terms of either being wise or foolish. And so this very much uh, overlaps with and goes hand in hand with the distinctions of being righteous or wicked. But again, all of this is within a framework of one single yet diverse human race. No man-made distinctions, but God's distinctions of being wicked or righteous, wise or foolish. Well, then if we fast forward again to uh, there's all kinds of history and theology and things that are continuing to unfold in the Old Testament, but all of God's original covenant dealings with his people, Israel, Israel were pointing to a new covenant uh, that he would be bringing to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the places this new covenant is very um, um, fully spoken of is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. So go ahead and read that, Joshua. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, so this is God's promises of a new and ultimately better covenant in his design that would fulfill and replace the old covenant. Of course, this covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and this is further advancing God's design and promise plan for redemptive kingdom diversity. Uh, You notice there at the end of verse 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And as this extends from uh, those original covenant promises and statements, even all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the intent is that this would be encompassing people from all nations because God's original intent for Abraham and for the people that would flow from Abraham, the nation of Israel, was to bless them so they would be a blessing to all the nations. And so uh, this, by extension, is indicating that God's purposes in the new covenant extend to all the nations, his promised plan for redemptive kingdom diversity. Well, then we move into the New Testament, again, as we see the new covenant unfolding in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and hear this statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, Jesus is promising to build his church, his ecclesia, his gathering of people. And uh, the church here is identified in very, very broad terms and with the implication that it's going to comprise diverse image-bearing sinners who express the right faith, the right uh, faith in the right confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in the context of this statement being made by Jesus, uh, the Apostle Peter, through uh, the revelation that God has given, has rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's on the heels of that right confession uh, that Jesus says, uh, I will build my church. And again, by implication, it's indicating that this is going to comprise any and all who share in that right confession, diverse image-bearing sinners. Well, then in John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, in the context of Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, listen to what he says here regarding those whom he is gathering. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, one flock, one shepherd. But Jesus makes clear that his promise is to be gathering his one flock uh, from diverse sinners. And he's ultimately talking about from both Jews and non-Jews, from Jews and Gentiles. So he's promising to gather his one flock uh, comprised of diverse sinners. Well, then we hear uh, following his death and his resurrection and before he ascends to the Father as he commissions his disciples, which is ultimately the entire church, uh, to what we are called to be doing. It's all encompassing. And so Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, and so what we're seeing here is Jesus commissioning of the church to be making disciples of diverse sinners from all the nations. Again, this is redemptive kingdom diversity continuing to unfold. Well, then we come to the book of Acts, and this is exactly what we begin to see taking place as Acts uh, provides a history for us of the beginning and the growth of the early church through the preaching of the gospel. So uh, just a few passages to highlight here. Uh, first of all, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, so we see this expansion that Jesus speaks of. And uh, you probably know that that statement of Jesus, that uh, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, his people will be witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then uh, to the ends of the earth. That forms the framework, the outline of, of the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, But the gospel goes forward through the power of the Holy Spirit, not only across geographical lines, but also across ethnic and even religious lines. And so, uh, read that statement in chapter 11, verse 18, Joshua. When they they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, "Then Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, and the statement that's being made there is in regard to the event that if you were with us last week and we looked at Peter's preaching to this Gentile named Cornelius and his household, uh, that event was significant in the unfolding of God's purposes because it was used of God to help the early church leaders very clearly, dramatically, and decisively understand that the gospel was to go to non-Jews like Cornelius and his family as well. And so it drove that point home, and they came to that understanding ever more fully. And then uh, from that point on, the Apostle Paul, who was saved uh, dramatically and powerfully by Jesus, as we read about that in Acts chapter 9, uh, he becomes a primary missionary to the Gentiles. And, and the majority of the rest of the book of Acts focuses on God's work through Paul in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And at the very end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse uh, 28 through 31, this is spoken of, of this ever-expanding uh, spreading of the gospel. So go ahead and read that one too, Joshua. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Okay. Two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay. And what's being emphasized there is that the word of God is continuing to go forward, and, and it's going forward uh, encompassing the diversity of all the nations, sinners from all the nations. And of course, that's continuing on even to this day. Well, then, uh, just a few more passages to look at here. Uh, Paul's understanding of kingdom, redemptive kingdom diversity as he speaks of it at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Okay, very direct, explicit, unequivocal statement that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone, of everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. Redemptive kingdom diversity. Uh, In Galatians chapter 3, a passage that Tim's made reference to a few times in previous lessons as well, verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, and what's being emphasized here, again, is this uh, diversity that is bound up in God's kingdom. And and along categories that that we understand, there's yet a a unity, a clarity of, a unity of diversity within God's kingdom, within the hope of the gospel. I'm going to skip uh, these passages that are in Ephesians and also in 1 Peter, uh, not because they're unimportant, but just for the sake of time, but I'd encourage you to look at those on your own. They simply reinforce and continue to identify uh, this clear understanding of redemptive kingdom diversity, both by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians as well as by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, But let's go ahead and fast forward to the book of Revelation now as we're given scenes in heaven and of what's going to unfold at the return of Christ and how it fully encompasses and expresses uh, this redemptive kingdom diversity. So Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, again, people from every tribe and tongue and nation that are being gathered. This is echoed again in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, if you want to read that. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, and again, this is echoing what we already saw in chapter 5. I'm going to let you look at that passage in chapter 21 on your own as it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth and the people of God, the the diverse yet unified people of God who comprise uh, the population of the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God. The point to make in all of this, and as I include this quote in your handout, uh, is simply this, as Williams observes. He says, These diverse, chosen, and transformed Jews and Gentiles in Christ become God's new multi-ethnic community, in other words, the people of God, with real distinct cultural experiences and ethnic particularities. In them, God fulfills through Christ all the saving promises to Adam, Abraham, David, and Israel to bless them and their offspring because of Jesus' redemption of some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and because God also renews the cosmos via Jesus' cross and resurrection. And the point in all of this, and I'm taking time to sort of labor this and to move through all of the different passages that we've moved through, is to to affirm and to make this point that um, in God's sovereign, loving, and wise design, ethnic diversity in his kingdom is a good thing. 
ethnic diversity in his kingdom is a good thing. For every single one of us, our distinct ethnic identities that encompass so many different things, our backgrounds, our experiences, our cultures, our languages, and on, all of those things don't get dissolved when we come to faith in Christ. Rather, they get redeemed. They get redeemed. And God has made his redemptive kingdom then to involve a unity of diversity among his people, which displays his glory and his beauty. Now, we know and understand that on this earth, while we are not yet glorified, for those of us who are believers, uh, uh, this unity and diversity is imperfect. In heaven, we will be glorified. And I don't know exactly what all that diversity is going to look like, but even as we hear in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7, as there's people gathered around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation, there's some regard and recognition for how that diversity is going to be present. There's a unity in diversity, and so our ethnic identities don't get don't get dissolved, they get redeemed and ultimately will be glorified. One way I think of this by way of illustration, no illustration is perfect and this one's certainly not either, but think about the unity of diversity that God has created in the physical world with all of the glory and the beauty that this displays, especially this time of the year here in Sacramento. We've had all this rain and everything is, is blossoming and, and growing and leaves are back out again. I know for some of you that creates uh, all kinds of issues with allergies and whatnot, so it's because we live in a fallen world, but it's going to be perfect in heaven. But there's a unity of diversity in the beauty and the richness and the fullness of creation, isn't there? Land and water and sky and clouds, rains, trees, rain, trees, flowers, colors, shapes, tastes, smells, and on and on. It's stunning and it's breathtaking. Diversity plus unity equals beauty in God's design. And so it is in an even fuller way in redemption to the praise of God's beautiful grace. So all of this in this first point, that God's sovereign design uh, is for redemptive kingdom diversity, is to highlight that this is good. This is bound up really in the very good uh, that God had originally expressed in creation before the fall of mankind. Now, before we move on to the next point then, in terms of how we're to walk worthy in light of that, uh, any questions, any observations about that as we've covered a fair amount of ground and kind of laying that groundwork? Any amens? Anything? Yes, there were some amens spoken for the sake of it. Yes, John. Um, one observation that I was finding is as a whole, we like to sort ourselves by like likeness. Like you know, we'll go to a church where we all speak the same language, or um, we'll live in neighborhoods where people look like us. But God's like in general, God like if you look at like a nature, it's the opposite of that. There's yeah. all sorts of things living together in a group in like a forest per se. Mm. Like it's not just one kind of plant or one kind of bug. Yes. Many different things. Yeah. So it ties into that. But yep. in heaven, we won't be sorted by likeness anymore. We'll be a diverse group. 
Yep. That's how God designed things. Yep. Yeah, excellent observation. For the sake of the video, John was making the observation that uh, that we have a tendency to uh, be drawn to uh, people who we're like in, in all kinds of categories, let, let alone ethnic uh, elements, but there's all other kinds of categories as well. But that's different than uh, what we see even in creation with just such rich diversity and yet a unity in all of that. So let's see. Sherry, you had your hand up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and something positive rather than all the negative that we've got facing us yeah. today. Yep. And, and, and to look at it biblically as uh, of God or not of God, wicked versus righteousness, rather than black and white or whatever. Um, it's just so, it's so refreshing. Excellent. Sherry was just making the observation that uh, it's refreshing to think of diversity in terms of beauty in God's design and recognizing the the right godly biblical categories of wickedness and righteousness, foolishness and wisdom, uh, but the beauty that God's intended uh, for those who belong to him and that we share that. So, excellent. Yeah, Joshua. Yeah, and just if, if hopefully I rightly summarize what you just said and, and asking with regard to culture and the diversity of cultures and and somewhat r- responding to the statement I made that that in Christ our our ethnic ethnic identity isn't totally dissolved it's redeemed um, your question is aren't there some elements of culture that are dissolved and destroyed in Christ that's the essence of your question right. And, and the answer is absolutely. And, and thinking of it in terms of categories of righteousness and wickedness, um, um, wisdom and foolishness, any and all of those things. And this plays out certainly personally in our lives. It certainly plays out with regard to, to cultural aspects, all of that. Any of those things that are wicked or foolish are dissolved, destroyed, and should be increasingly. So, yeah, it's all... That's kind of what I was alluding to in, in saying, you know, in heaven, it's all going to be glorified in, in the fullness of righteousness, in the fullness of God's wisdom. So, so yeah, it's not a, uh, it, it's not a unilateral preservation. It's all, it's all redeemed and glorified in the righteousness, in the wisdom of God. So, 
Let's see, one more question, Wesley, and then we'll move on. So. Yeah, one of the first verses you brought up in Genesis, um, I want to make sure I, I got it right. It was the 315 with the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. Um, did you say then afterwards that Cain was of the serpent? I just want to make sure I, I got this right. Who is, who is the serpent's offspring that is fighting against Eve's offspring? Right. Yeah, the question is with regard to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. uh, Does that mean that your question is, was I saying that Cain was the seed of the serpent? And I didn't I didn't explicitly say that. Did I get your question right? Yeah, Yeah, I was moving through quickly. Uh, I think the sense there is every human being ultimately comes from the seed of the woman, right? We understand that as, as Adam and Eve are our first parents, and so every human being. I think there's a, a sense in what God is saying there that, that all that are of evil and expressing evil in that sense are flowing from, as it were, the seed of the serpent. They're, they're expressing that evil inclination um, and that evil nature, which ultimately Cain did. So, in a in a brief way, that's how I would answer that. There's probably a lot more that could be said, but yeah. But we we understand there's that reality of enmity and of now mankind possessing a sinful nature uh, that is is immediately inclined to evil, and uh, and that's how we see that play out with Cain in killing his brother. Okay, let's go ahead and move on uh, for the sake of, of trying to flow through things here, and uh, we'll just be touching on a number of things. But uh, in light of God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity, as we're describing it, how should the people of God think and act? And so remember the thesis statement, God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his redemptive kingdom diversity to the praise of his glorious grace. And so this leads to the second point we want to look at, walking worthy in God's redemptive kingdom diversity. And I'm just going to highlight a few passages here, and then we're going to take time to think about uh, considerations and implications of these things, as well as some points of application before we wrap it all up. But the point to understand here, before we uh, look specifically at these passages, is that if God, in Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is working to redeem and gather diverse, multi-ethnic people to populate his kingdom then all his people should zealously embrace, cultivate, and preserve this unity of diversity that God is forming for his glory. In other words, if we belong to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world, then we must zealously walk worthy in the will of Christ our King uh, rather than being drawn into the agendas and the ideologies of the world. So I want to just touch on a few passages that make this calling and obligation clear for God's people, and then in a few minutes again, we'll talk about some of the practical implications 
considerations of this and some applications in view of this call. But for now, what I just want to emphasize with these passages is the clarity of the call. This is God's will for us to walk worthy in these things. And all of these apply uh, not only to us as individual believers, but as God's people collectively, and especially as this plays out in local churches. So uh, some of these, no doubt, you're familiar with. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, uh, Jesus makes uh, this very clear exhortation to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is not a new commandment in the sense of God had, in the Old Testament, made it clear that we're to love him and that we're to love others. So it's not a new commandment in that sense. The sense in which it is new with the way in which Jesus expresses it is that it is new in the new covenant that he is inaugurating with his body and with his blood. In other words, this command now has a new, uh, fuller, clearer reference point in the love of God manifest in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, understanding that command, even in connection with what we saw earlier in chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus said he's gathering people, uh, implying from all nations, uh, where there would be one flock and one shepherd. It's in that one flock with one shepherd uh, that we're to love one another. And in a way that displays to the world uh, that we are his disciples. It's a unique and a supernatural love. Well, then over in Ephesians chapter 4, and in a sense, Jesus' command there in John 13 is a, is a, is a broad, all-encompassing command. The details of what that love looks like gets worked out fuller in the rest of the New Testament in, in much greater uh, detail. But in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 6, as Paul has spent the first three chapters speaking of the blessings that God's people have in Christ and all the, the richness of all of that to the praise of God, God's glory. Listen to what he says, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, there it is, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on to say then, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, all that Paul says there in verses 1 to 6, uh, he's going to continue to just expand and develop more fully and with greater specificity in what this worthy walk looks like, uh, really through the remainder of his letter. And again, all of this is flowing from the great spiritual blessings that God has given in Christ to this praise of the glory of his grace and to the one body that he is forming of both Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and non-Jews. In other words, from all nations. And Paul speaks about that in Ephesians 2 as well as in Ephesians 3. And so it's in that context, this call to walk worthy. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm actually going to uh, circle back and encompass a passage we didn't read earlier from verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. 
Uh, But notice verses 9 and 10 speak of believer's identity, and then verses 11 and 12 speak of how we're to walk and live in light of this identity. So he says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Is he getting that language from Exodus 19 that we read earlier? Yes, absolutely. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not re- had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so in light of this identity, now as God's people, he says, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He doesn't use the phrase walk worthy, but you get the sense it's the exact same intent. In light of who we are in Christ as the the unified yet diverse people of God, we are to exhibit that to the world and to have our conduct among uh, the Gentiles be honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they would see our good deeds, glorify God on the day of visitation, uh, which seems to be a reference to the return of Christ. And so again, the point to understand here is that our calling to walk worthy, our calling to live in light of who we are in Christ, if we belong to Christ as the people of God in a fallen world, is very clear. It's very, very clear. And even just thinking about a lot of the different metaphors that we find in the New Testament for what the church is. Uh, It is the body of Christ. It is the family of God. It is uh, the temple of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is the flock uh, that Jesus has gathered and that he is the shepherd king over. All of these metaphors and many others uh, express this unity and diversity and how we are then to live in light of that and the implications of that. And so again, God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his redemptive kingdom diversity uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is a good thing. So all of this in some ways is sort of self-evident, but, but taking time to just make it very, very clear. Now, before we take just a little bit of time to talk about some considerations and implications of these matters, and then a few uh, points of application, any, any questions or observations or thoughts at this point before we take just a few minutes to talk about other things related to it all? Okay, I'll take that as a good sign to continue moving ahead. So some practical considerations, some practical implications, and and we're only going to have time to just touch on these. And in in many ways, these things are are echoing the significance of the groundwork that Tim has laid over the last few weeks. And these are the kinds of things that highlight and identify the complexities, the challenges of just working these things out in our lives and in our relationships with one another, and how those who are believers, how we're to live in this world. And so uh, these are some specific practical ways of walking worthy. 
And to do this, recognizing that we live in a fallen world uh, that is ethnically diverse and that our overall society uh, has been racialized. And I think Tim has used that phrase a a few times in the past. It's been racialized, meaning that we've been made to think that people should be classified as superior or inferior based on false constructs of race like skin color. That's what it means to to be racialized. This is a a way of thinking, an ideology, an orientation that has permeated the world. And so recognizing that our world has fallen and that we live in that context, how do we How do we walk worthy in light of this uh, redemptive kingdom diversity that God has brought us into if we belong to him? Well, there's a number of different uh, specific points of consideration. And again, we can only uh, just touch on these. And and I'm interested in what might be some implications you think of related to these. First of all, most prominently in the context of all we're talking about, uh, thinking about the people of God and racism thinking about the people of God and racism. What would be some implications of of how we respond uh, to this whole concept even of of racism um, regarding the redemptive diversity of God's kingdom and regarding uh, what it means to belong uh, to him and and what it is that he's doing? Any any implications come to, to anybody's mind? I've got a number of them, but... Just see if there's thoughts from from anybody. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent observation and implication, just that, that concepts of racism don't come out of God's word, out of God's design. They come out of fallen mankind and out of sinfulness. So it's, it's, it's recognizing there's a massive distinction in the very uh, framework of it all, that it's not from God but from man. Matt. Yeah, just the observation that often pride is a part of that. And so we need to check our own hearts uh, for evidences of pride and, and recognize that that can be in play and how, how things are addressed uh, wherever someone may land, right? Okay. Yeah, Matt, another Matt, a different Matt for the sake of the video here. Sin is we're blinded to our own sin, so we may have some black marks that we should be aware of. 
Yep. So the, there's just the observation that, that because of indwelling sin uh, that still is present for any of us who are believers, that we should be, as you said, uh, suspicious of ourselves, um, uh, vigilant and humble in recognizing that, that we could be guilty of both intentional, you're kind of implying, we could be guilty of both intentional, unintentional sins, and so to be, be humble, right? Yeah, very clear, so. Yeah, Gary. Thanks, Matt. Just, you know, there's this concept of racism, and then I don't know historically because going through this, where racism, racism, the idea of racism came about, uh, you know, like you say, defining racism as color of skin or you know, white versus black, these things. But but I found, you know, in I think racism, maybe, but say I don't know, prior to say the 1860s or early 19th century, and then of course early 20th century, the effect of evolution, in other words, Satan's plan, that that's where racism really started was when Charles Darwin, the you know the ascent of the or the races, the uh, survival of the fittest and, and races. And then, of course, this was put out by Marx and moved on through there, through even the, the, uh, you know, the, oh, I can't remember the woman's name, who was very prominent in the 20th century. But that racism, I think, is a product, not so much <coughs> scripturally. I don't think we really see race in the Bible. I don't know. I, I do remember, I guess, in Solomon, that, that the woman was dark-skinned or something like that, but, but I don't know. See, but I think we need to really emphasize that racism, let's not put it all on the church, church's fault. Let's put it where it belongs, on Satan's evolutionistic, you know, the humanism. In other words, that, that you say between the righteous and the unrighteous or diversity. I, I just find this a little bit difficult topic for me here, you know, because the emphasis on diversity, I would rather emphasize unity, but I'm glad this is opening my eyes, and then I would like to see from this, from talking about this and racism, maybe follow-up, why don't we emphasize the, the, the emphasis of unity in the scripture, and follow-up, okay, we got diversity, what about, what is unity then? Oh, certainly. So anyway, so this, this racism thing is, is just difficult for me. Right. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, and again, just trying to, to recap for the sake, is that... Just so you know, we have these microphones here that are sure. Yeah, I know they don't always get the... From listening to it the last few weeks, they don't always get the most of it. So, But I appreciate that, yeah. Just, just the... Um, uh, Recognizing there's a lot to the issues and, and that, that race such as it is, I think we can safely say the seeds of it are bound up in the fall. They're bound up in sinful human nature that seeks to, in any number of ways, um, identify one as superior, another as inferior. And, and even in the sense of what unfolds, the enmity that we begin to see unfold with Cain and Abel, that, that Cain exercises that. That's, that's the point in that, yeah, throughout history, time, culture, life, everything, and certainly 
uh, bound up within things that got framed and articulated in the doctrines of evolution, as you mentioned with Charles Darwin and all that maybe maybe um, amplified a lot of those things, but the seeds of it all, and I think what I hear you saying are bound up in in fallen humanity and wickedness uh, unrighteousness the unity uh, in in that is what we see in emphasizing in terms of what god 's doing in gathering people in a redemptive kingdom of diversity that's yet unified and beautiful that we see in Revelation. So let me do this um, for the sake of time. uh, These are other discussions that no doubt we'll have in weeks to come, and maybe these things will help spur on just discussions among one another as we work all of these things out. Let me just identify all these different little uh, categories of considerations and and make a couple quick points, and then we'll we'll need to wrap it up. Uh, But think about uh, the people of God and classism. Uh, In other words, classism being all the different social class categories that that we see and think of in our world, like rich, poor, middle class, blue collar, white collar, uh, educated, uneducated, on down the line. People of God and classism. Think about uh, number three, the people of God and political identity. Uh, how political identity often becomes a, a, a framework in which uh, people operate. Uh, political categories like Democrat, Republican, Independent, uh, Liberal, Conservative, on down the line. Think about these things as they play out, number four, with the people of God and dual citizenship. Uh, meaning that for the people of God, we are citizens in the kingdom of God. We belong to the kingdom of God, and yet for however long we're in this world, we're a part of the kingdom of the world, as it were. Um, We live in the world. We're not of the world, but we live in the world. And so just how does that unfold in our lives? And that adds to the uh, complexity of of thinking about and striving to, to live these things out. Uh, Number five, think about implications regarding the people of God and multi-ethnic churches. Uh, So many things to consider there. Is it right or wrong? Is it wise or foolish? Uh, Is it legitimate or not legitimate to have sort of mono-ethnic churches that are named by a particular ethnicity, such as we could envision, say, the Oklahoma Sooner Grace community church or that kind of a thing. You get the point of what I'm saying. Um, is, is that, how should we think about those things? Is that right, wrong, wise, unwise, legitimate, illegitimate? Those are complex things to talk about. And also thinking about realistic expectations and challenges for uh, multi-ethnic churches. And even in multi-ethnic churches where there is a diversity of ethnicities, usually there's nonetheless one more dominant or more, more majority, uh, I shouldn't say dominant, more majority ethnicity. Uh, think also about number six, uh, the people of God and counting the cost. Counting the cost. In other words, the, the point to think about is... Uh, to be faithful in walking worthy in light of God's redemptive kingdom diversity uh, that, that he is developing, it's hard work. It's sacrificial work. It involves all kinds of, of, of difficulty and patience and humility to really pursue this. Uh, one of the points that Tim made, I think a couple of weeks ago, you know, in terms of those that would say, listen, all we need to do is just preach the gospel. Well, if that was about all we needed to do, the New Testament would be very, very, very short, wouldn't it? It would just say, just preach the gospel. Well, no, there's all kinds of implications to how we're to live in light of the gospel and how that works itself out. 
And it involves sacrifice. It involves difficulty. It involves time to uh, really engage in listening and being compassionate and in speaking the truth wisely and in love and being sympathetic and, and sensitive and compassionate in all of these things. It's hard demanding work. And then also just considerations to think about. Number seven, the people of God and Jesus being our only hope. Jesus, our only hope. Uh, in other words, that we not put hope in the things of this world, the agendas of this world, the movements of this world, uh, whatever it may be, but that we're looking uh, to Jesus and finding him and the hope of the gospel uh, in him, even as Paul spoke of in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It is the power of God uh, for the salvation of those who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. And so not putting false hopes in government policies or social justice movements or diversity training and programs. Not that any of those may not have a place, but it's the matter of where our hope is. So all of those things, and there's certainly many others that we could identify, are just areas that we have to kind of think and work these things out in. And, uh, and, and it's not quick fix kinds of answers. There's lots of complexity to pray about, think about, talk about. Well, uh, just a few concluding thoughts uh, here uh, at the very end in light of this. And again, uh, the overarching focus that God's sovereign design for redemptive kingdom diversity should inflame his people with a zealous vision to walk worthy in his kingdom, redemptive kingdom diversity, to the praise of his glorious grace. Just a few specific applications. Number one, pray. Pray. Have you ever thought about the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, if we understand the nature of the kingdom that he is, uh, that he is gathering is a, is a kingdom of redemptive diversity of, of people from all kinds of ethnicities, people of all tribes and tongues and nations, that's the kingdom we're to be praying about and the nature of it and to be praying in that way. Uh, the passage I mentioned there in Ephesians chapter 3 is where Paul says how he's praying for the Ephesian believers in light of all of God's blessings, that they would know the fullness of his love and be filled to the measure of all of his fullness. But he acknowledges that God is the father of, of his family, of his one family. And it encompasses those from every nation in the earth. So we're to be praying in these ways and recognizing the, uh, the rich fullness and diversity of God's kingdom within his righteousness and holiness. Number two, and again, these kind of anticipate uh, upcoming things as well. But number two, pursue and welcome one another. Pursue and welcome one another. Uh, as John made the observation a little bit ago, we have a tendency to just be drawn and kind of drift into uh, those who are like us or those who are similar to us. And uh, we need to be welcoming of one another. And that passage in Romans 15 is an exhortation to that end, even when there are differing convictions and differing uh, levels of theological understanding and application, we're nonetheless to have a, a welcoming uh, disposition, accepting one another, pursuing one another in that way. And then a final exhortation, uh, number three, be patient. Be patient. And the passage there in James 5 is actually one we're going to hear in the worship service. It's going to be read a little bit later in the worship service of just being patient 
And remembering that as long as we live in this world, until Jesus, com- until Jesus comes, we live in an already not yet framework of things. There's a tension in a sense because uh, we belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully here. And so just I'll close with this quote uh, from Williams here at the end. We need to give up the naive idea that racism will be fully eradicated or will end in a fallen world on this side of eternity. Yet, we need to work together relentlessly as the people of God to become like the one new humanity and to pursue the redemptive kingdom diversity for which Jesus died and rose again. So just having uh, a right focus, but also realistic expectations, and in all of it, being patient, being patient. Let me lead us in prayer, and we'll wrap it up there. Father, we thank you for these things. We've covered a lot of ground and uh, no doubt provoked probably more questions and considerations than what we've answered. And yet you are, are good and faithful. So please guide us in these things that we might live and walk worthy in light of who you are, in light of uh, what you have revealed and all that you are doing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray you do this for your glory in his name. Amen. Amen.